Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Here to celebrate tonight, Nicole Seymour and her new book, Bad Environmentalism. She's also uh, an associate professor of English at Cal State University Fullerton, and she's also the author of Strange Natures. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about our store, Skylight Books. Uh, we have something called a Friends with Benefits Club. It's not what you're thinking. But for an annual membership fee of 25 bucks, uh, you guys will get 20% off selected Skylight bestsellers and other featured titles. You'd get 20% off current month's author event books, so that would be 20% off this one. Uh, you also get 10% off books, DVDs, blank journals, cards, and also there's all sorts of members-only events and special sales throughout the year. You also get a special monthly e-newsletter, and uh, there's a free media mail shipping within the continental United States. So you could call our store, tell us you want to send a book to your friend in New York, and then we'll send it to them. No charge on you guys, okay? Follow us um, on Twitter, if you could, at Skylight Books. Then turn your phone off. That would be good. And you can also follow Nicole over there at NCMore PhD. All right, you guys, without any further ado, please put your hands together for Nicole Seymour. And that's approved. Okay. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. It means a lot to me. Um, special thanks to Lily House Peters, where did she go? Over here for making the buttons. Um, you're not allowed to have a button unless you buy a book. So if you click a button, you have to buy a book. Okay. Um, and also to Darren DeWitt for giving us publicity assistance. Um, I'm going to keep it relatively short in terms of speaking since we have um, cupcakes to eat. That's the sign. There's only a little bit of champagne left because you guys are monsters. Uh, but <laughs> take, take care of that last bottle. Um, so I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes, um, and then we'll have a little bit of Q&A if anyone has anything they want to ask. Um, so there are two basic premises behind this book, Bad Environmentalism. Number one, everything is terrible and the planet is falling apart. Number two, but also everyone hates environmentalists because they're gloomy and doomy killjoys that make us feel bad about ourselves, and by reminding us that everything is terrible and the planet is falling apart, and that we're at least partially responsible. Or at least that's kind of like the word on the street. So then my argument, or my thesis, is that in response to those premises, a new wave of environmental artists and activists have been rejecting the moods and attitudes historically associated with mainstream environmentalism, including gloom and doom, guilt, sanctimony, self-righteousness, reverence, and sentimentality. And instead, they're embracing modes such as irony, irreverence, glee, absurdity, perversity, playfulness, and humor. And um, in kind of like fancy academic language, we sometimes refer to, to those moods or um, attitudes as affects. So if you hear me say affects later when I'm reading from the book, I'm basically saying moods and attitudes. So I call this new phenomenon bad environmentalism. And I trace it across everything from poetry and novels from the last 20 or so years to drag performance and stand-up comedy. And in the book, I'm, I'm looking mostly at English-speaking Western sources from the US, Canada, the UK and Australia, since that's my, my area of expertise, but 
there's also some stuff from Korea, Mexico, Germany sprinkled in there um, because I really do see that environmentalism as this global phenomenon. So why is it important that artists and activists are embracing modes like irony, irreverence, etc.? There's at least three reasons. So first, in doing so, they actually remind us of the ironies and absurdities surrounding environmental crisis. Um, that is to say, they're, they're adopting the modes of the times to talk about these times. So for instance, um, there's been this assumption that if you just educate people about climate change, they'll do something about it. And that's been known as the uh, knowledge deficit hypothesis, right? The problem is like, we just need to educate people. It's because they don't get it. And once they get it, everything's going to be better. Um, but sociologists have actually found that it's um, kind of the opposite and that people tend to freak out and get emotionally paralyzed if they're overwhelmed with info. Um, which is probably what happened to many of us when the um, IPCC report came out, the new one a couple weeks ago, where we're like, well, shit, right? Everything's terrible. Can I say the bad word yeah. for the podcast? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Because <laughs> there's at least one more. Um, okay. So, so that's this ironic situation, right? That um, the more you know about climate change, the less likely you're going to do something about it. Um, so embracing irony is a way for these artists and activists to point to those ironies that, that exist. Um, number two, or second, embracing modes like irony and irreverence allows these artists and activists to critique mainstream environmentalism and to show its limitations. So uh, mainstream environmentalism can be really white or even racist. It can be really straight or heteronormative. So if you think about sort of the, um, the rhetoric you see a lot in mainstream environmental campaigns about, you know, we have to save the planet for our children, and, you know, it's always, you know, a, a specific kind of child that is... Um, Imagine the poster child is always a specific kind of child. Um, so at various points in the book, what I'm talking about is how these quote-unquote bad environmentalists are using irony and irreverence to make fun of mainstream environmentalism, its whiteness and its straightness, etc. Um, finally, in embracing irony, irreverence, etc., these bad environmentalists have a chance to reach new and more diverse audiences, especially those experiencing what one scholar has termed doomsday fatigue. So we're just, we don't want to hear the bad news anymore. So this is a new, new sort of mode. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is to give a couple examples of what I'm talking, at, uh, talking about and then read a couple snippets from the book. So if you turn to your handout. Um, I also didn't realize we were going to be podcasting, so I'm going to describe some of these images. Um, so, um, yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the first two examples on your handout come from my fourth chapter, which um, is about how African-American um, culture makers are using modes like satire, irony, irreverence, etc., to, to talk about various um, stereotypes such as that, quote-unquote, black folk don't care about nature. Um, and so um, the first one is a poem by the U.S. poet Latasha N. Nevada Diggs, and it's called My First Black Nature Poem, TM, as in trademark. And the poem, you just have a snippet, but it, it parodies white mainstream nature writing, and it also speaks to how um, black people and other people of color have been forcibly alienated from nature. And the next one is, um, again, from that same chapter, but it's a slightly more popular example that makes similar points. And this is a, a video that appeared on funnyordie.com. I don't know if anyone has, has seen it, but it's um, starring Blair Underwood, where he's just a guy trying to hike. And various things happen where People run away from him, um, or people are very, creep, uh, very creepy and really interested in him and ask if they can watch him hike and um, <laughs> things like that. 
things like that. Um, and I think his facial expression says everything. So at the very end of the video, all the people like you know want to take a picture with him, and he's just kind of like you know, perturbed. Um, so the third example is um, from this Canadian group called the Lesbian National Parks and Services, which um, created a parody nature field guide. Um, I think it's called the Field Guide to North America, Flora and Fauna. And it includes things like a chapter on beavers <laughs> and illustrations like this one. And if you are listening to the podcast, it's basically um, directions for how to make a solar still, which is a thing that apparently you can get like dew from the atmosphere, whatever, I don't know if they think about camping, but um, <laughs> do you need water? I don't know if you're dying of thirst, you can build sort of a thing to collect water. Um, but it, the image looks suspiciously vaginal, um, at least to me. Um, so what's happening in this book is um, this group is trying to use humor to make our views of nature a little less straight. Um, okay, so I'm going to turn to the book now, as I said, um, and I'm going to read a quick snippet from chapter two as it relates to the fourth image on your handout. And the fourth image is um, from Isabel Rossellini's Green Porno, and it just shows her dressed as a snail. Okay, so um, this is a section of the chapter called Man is the Only Animal Who Blushes, which is a quotation from Mark Twain, colon, obscenity, queerness, and repulsiveness in wild boys and green porno. So a central element of wild boys' and green porno's affective descent is their perverse interest in the obscene, the queer, and the repulsive. And I just realized I should inter um, interrupt myself to say the other show I'm talking about in this chapter it was an MTV show um, from 2003 to 2006 called Wild Boys, and it's a spinoff um, of Jackass, if anyone's seen that. Okay, um, so both of these shows have an interest in the obscene, the queer, and the repulsive. Until very recently, such elements have been absent from the typically family-friendly nature-slash-wildlife genre, and certainly never associated with obscene figures. As Rosalini herself muses, perhaps naively, quote, I watch nature documentaries constantly, but I've never seen whales mating. Maybe they censored it? Perhaps a lot of documentaries are made for children, and they do not want them to know about whale reproduction, end quote. When distasteful images do appear in nature-slash-wildlife programming, they usually do so in the service of glorifying some other behaviors. So if you see something gross, like you know, the, the ravaged carcass of an animal like on the Discovery Channel, it's usually to show that uh, a predator is very efficient, right? very strong and, and fierce or whatever. In contrast, wild boys and green porno linger delightedly on the obscene, queer, and repulsive aspects of animals and humans. Often this means bodily functions. When examining a dead squid, for example, the wild boys eagerly ask to see its pooper. The expert on hand obliges, showing us both the pooper and the pooper shooter, along with what appears to be a pocket of waste. Similarly, in one green porno film, a costumed, contorted Isabella Rossellini reports, quote, if I were a snail, my anus would end up on top of my head, end quote. As as colorful excretion squirts from a puppet-esque opening above her, she winces and completes the thought with a croak. Unfortunately. Set designer Andy Byers further describes the scene as such. Quote, um, and this is for, from an interview, I think, in um, Filmmaker magazine. Quote, there's this soft, focused glow, which is actually super corny, but then she poops on her face. End quote. 
Byers thus articulates the centrality of unexpected juxtapositions to green porno. But while his comment seems focused primarily on the formal, that is to say on the play between lighting and mise-en-scene, it has much to say about affect. Through mechanisms like that soft-focused glow, green porno invokes the sentimentality, horniness, and other typical affective appeals of nature-slash-wildlife programming, and then almost literally shits on them. And this is um, the last example from the book, and it relates to the last image on the page, coincidentally. Um, so here I'm talking about um, this a BBC mockumentary from last year. I don't know if anyone saw this, um, called Carnage, colon, Swallowing the Past. Um, it was also, uh, it was billed as a vegan sci-fi comedy, actually. Um, and I'm, I'm, I use this in the book in the conclusion um, to kind of wrap up my argument, and that's that's what I'll do today. Um, he's not pictured here, but it was created by Simon Amstel, um, a gay British Jewish vegan stand-up comedian um, who basically writes about his, his ab abject life and whatever. But um, so he wrote and directed and provided the voiceover for the film. Um, and actually, before um, before I read from the chapter, I just want to point out um, some of the details of the image um, from the handout because it, it's an example of how all of the works I look at in some way specifically make fun of themselves. And that's actually key to how they avoid um, some of the, the affects or moods associated with mainstream environmentalism. So again, the, the sanctimony and the self-righteousness and all that kind of stuff. So um, even when they're, they're talking about environmental issues, um, they're also making fun of themselves. So the person that's being interviewed in the film um, in this example of fake, um, fake news footage, right, because it's a mockumentary, and he's saying in the, the closed captions, who wants to sit and watch an entire film about veganism? So if you're watching the film, you are sitting and watching an entire film about veganism, right? So again, it's the film itself is, is, is poking fun at itself. Okay, um, so Carnage, written and directed um, by Amstel, consists of archival and manufactured news footage, interviews, and TV show clips. It opens in the year 2067, a generation after non-vegan diets have become outlawed and outdated in the UK, and it seems elsewhere. The film makes affect, or mood, or attitude, central to this imagined future. The opening scene presents us with an attractive group of androgynous, multiracial youth frolicking in the outdoors, over which Amstel reports, quote, Britain is now raising the most peaceful and happy humans ever. Violence has been defeated with compassion, depression cured with intimacy. But, his voiceover continues, history has been replaced with silence, and for the older generation, there remain painful memories. We are then introduced to a psychotherapist named Dr. Yasmin Vandenbergen, author of a book titled The Guilt of Eating Your Brother, who holds weekly support groups to help the older generation deal with this psychological sickness. So there's one scene in the film where um, a bunch of older people, um, she makes them throw a bean bag around in a circle, and every time someone catches it, they have to say the name of a cheese that they once ate in order to <laughs> apologize for what they did. Um, so from, from, 26, from the year 2067, Carnage moves back and forth in time to answer the questions, who were we? How could we consume animal products? Why did we? And the film's recounting of history is both realistic and hilariously skewed. It takes us, for instance, to the 1970s, when U.S. fast food chains began targeting children. As Amstel recalls, quote, 
parents were charmed by characters like the Burger King, preferring to think of him as a magical king rather than someone dressed like that to detract from the genocide. <laughs> and Ronald McDonald's hair was red, apparently because he was a clown, not because he couldn't stop swimming in blood. <laughs> um, later we moved to the first decade of the 21st century when reality, t reality TV shows such as the UK's Fat Family, which is comparable to the US's um, The Biggest Loser, thrived. As Amstel observes, quote, this era of shaming would last until the end of the decade, until it was concluded that embarrassing people on TV didn't make them healthier, unquote. And I think that's a really important line because, again, it's a, a way in which the, the film is talking, uh, talking about this recognition that guilt, you know, guilting people, shaming them, embarrassing them is not a great political tactic, whether it's for environmentalism or, or dietary reasons. Um, okay. uh, so meanwhile, celebrity chefs rose to fame. As we watch Nigella Lawson press down on a chicken carcass, Amstel observes, quote, what looks to us now like a documentary about a lunatic was in fact a hit show about cooking, unquote. From its speculated future position, the film thus defamiliarizes and invites us to recognize the absurdities of meat and dairy consumption and of the dominant affects, sorry, affective tactics associated with leftist food politics as well as mainstream environmental politics. Eventually, Carnage shows us that veganism gradually took hold thanks to a combination of um, structural, legal, cultural, environmental, and again, affective causes. So you have um, ramped up climate change in the film, increased awareness of its connection to meat consumption. There's a super swine flu that like sweeps, um, sweeps the continent, um, and the passage of the 2035 Bill of Rights by the UK government. But the final uh, turning point is the invention of a machine that can read the thoughts and feelings of non-human animals. As Amstel sums up, quote, empathy, climate change, and the improvements in vegan nut cheese could no longer be ignored, unquote. Um, so what's, what's so fascinating to me about Carnage as, as a work of art and, and activism then is that it, it insists that good affects like empathy, love, compassion, and happiness are crucial to a vegan future. But it engages itself in bad affective modes like sarcasm, sorry, sarcasm playfulness, etc., to present that argument. Moreover, it frames affects like shame, guilt, and horror as part of the problem, not the solution. Um, and this, I think this is a particularly notable vision considering how vegan discourse, in addition to health discourse and mainstream environmental discourse more broadly, regularly engages in shaming and judgment. Okay, this is the last little snippet here. Um, so what I do in, in this last chapter as a way of wrapping up is to sort of, um, again, to use Simon Amstel's film as a way to think about what, what are the big implications of bad environmentalism. And so I come up with this um, conclusion about the, the fundamental difference between mainstream environmentalism and what I've termed bad environmentalism. Um, so while broadly speaking, both of those movements advocate for environment and animals, I must conclude that they ultimately do not share the same goals. That is, their affective and at attitudinal differences are matters not merely of approach, but of fundamental philosophical and political divergence. The works of bad environmentalism are premised on a refusal of purity politics, and subsequently on an embrace of contradiction, imperfection, and ambiguity, as well as an opposition to anti-progressive modes such as racism and homophobia, modes that often go hand in hand with mainstream environmental campaigns. These works find nothing sacred, and in fact find sacredness to be part of the problem when it comes to environment and animals. 
They offer a different way to do politics, one that is both messy and pragmatic. And they thereby point to a deep and abiding ambivalence at the heart of our contemporary relationship to the environment, one that many of us have been too ashamed or too driven or too beleaguered to acknowledge. And that's it, thank you. things I wish I sadly left out. Um, this, I wrote this essay recently on a, a blog about how um, all these people that I, not all of them, several people in the book have been accused of sexual harassment since <laughs> since the book came out. It's not my fault, but somehow I um, feel bad about it. Um, so there's a discussion of like Sherman Alexie and, you know, who should be able to take that out. Um, but that was not your question. Um, so yeah, how did I find them? Um, some of them were just things I actually liked, you know, like I, I, I talk about this Australian sitcom called Kath and Kim that um, Audrey and I used to be obsessed with and, you know, sort of look back and be like, oh, there was that episode on the environment, you know, so some of it was just stuff that I already liked and would love to write about and then, you know, just didn't make sense into this project and then um, a lot of people suggested stuff to me, so like people kept saying like, oh, you have to write about that South Park episode about the Toyonda Pius which is supposed to be like a um, parody of the Toyota Prius or whatever. Um, and I just, I don't know, not really into South Park. So basically I wrote about things I liked. And that was kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? So, um, thank you for doing this. Is there as much in your work as um, using someone other than conscious to communicate this message to the audience? Mm. Um, there isn't a lot. Um, th just in general, there's not a lot of um, quantitative research about humanities texts, right? Because a lot of times that would mean there'd have to be um, non-humanities people doing that kind of work. Um, so, for example, there's um, stuff on um, the day after tomorrow and how um, they interviewed people right after the movie, and they were like, "Yes, we're gonna like you know vote green and be good and stuff." And then two weeks later, they were like, "Um, wait, what?" Um, so, um, so in general, there's just not a lot of research on how like artistic texts like um, affect people like in terms of environmentalism, um, and yeah, that's a really interesting question because I sort of didn't want to get into the mode in this book of like saying for sure I think that this is the answer, right? That humor is the answer because I don't know if it is, and so. Um, I think the main thing I was trying to do in the book was just to say like these alternatives already exist and so whether or not they're like doing a better job, the people creating them feel the need to create them and so you know maybe they're doing other things other than you know fixing the problem, maybe they're creating community or um, you know functioning as catharsis or something but um, yeah not a ton of research out there about Um, thank you. Um, I wrote a book before this that was about um, 
queer literature and film and its engagement with environmental questions. And I sort of realized, I was thinking about methodology and thinking that like a lot of queer theory is very like sassy and like humorous and like has an attitude. And I wasn't, I didn't really get into that in the first book. And I was sort of like thinking about, you know, like other objects that queer theory takes up like drag and um, things like that and sort of like wondering like, well, what is the, you know, is there any connection between like drag and environmentalism? And like, turns out there totally is. And like RuPaul's Drag Race just had an episode on climate change last year. Um, so it was just sort of an extension of the first project. And then um, kind, kind of going back to what I was saying about liking these texts, like I think I'm a very political person, but I'm also like, can't stop making jokes, you know? Like I just, <laughs> unable, unable to. Um, so I don't know. I, so I think I was just really attracted to um, the idea that, that there were artists and activists out there that sort of had the same tone or attitude. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry to work. laughs> Any other questions? Cool. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about that until just this moment. I'm going to improvise. Um, yeah, I mean, that was actually a, a conversation right after Trump was elected, right? Like, people were, like, suddenly, like, turned on the comedians, and they were like, you did this. It was because you, you were making us laugh about him, and we weren't taking him seriously enough. And, you know, I think that's an oversimplification. Probably not worth getting into at this point, but um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. The, the thing that came to mind when you asked that question was um, like feminist movements and how like there's the stereotype of the killjoy feminist in the same way that there's the stereotype of the killjoy environmentalist. Um, but something kind of different has been happening in feminist movements where um, Sarah Ahmed, for example, has this whole thing about like own, own your killjoyness and like make men feel terrible about their sexism or whatever. You know? um, so I think that's just something that's happening differently across different movements. I will keep thinking about your question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that metaphor of Sophie Loren behind <laughs> the least sexy queer feminist or <laughs> <laughs> Go see this person's stand-up comedy show. No, seriously, she has a stand-up. No, that is it's perfect though. Um, so she, she hosts a stand-up comedy night called the Bimbo, Bimbo Summit, Bimbo Summit um, every Sunday. Talk to her later. If you, um, comedy is the answer. No, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, like clearly I, I don't have the answers. Like nobody else has the answer up until this point. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, I think that some of those like apocalyptic um, narratives, like A, they don't help, and B, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, like, indigenous thinkers that have recently sort of talked about, like, this apocalyptic script. Like, first of all, like, some, some, some communities have lived through, like, really terrible decimation, right? And this idea that, like, oh, bad things are happening now all of a sudden. That's, like, you know, not paying attention to past sort of um, horrors and injustices. Um, and that's also, um, you know, people aren't going to stop having babies, right? That's, like been clear from just my casual observations of people on the street. Um, so I just, you know, um, people are going to keep on keeping on somehow and maybe they'll laugh as they do so. Yeah. Okay. 
Alright, maybe time for more cupcakes and champagne. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.